0: Hello and welcome to the evidence-based section of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood, the Archimedes podcast. Yes, this podcast we enable you to say that you have experienced evidence-based medicine flowing into your ears. Hopefully it will flow through your ears into your brain and from your brain out into your clinical practice where you will improve and enhance the way that you work in medicine, bringing the evidence to your families and patients to answer their needs. Of course, this only works because a variety of people out there, sometimes clinical academics, but more often just normal doctors, have asked questions. Those questions have been formulated in an evidence-based medicine type way and then taken to the evidence in search for the right sort of paper that's going to answer that question. Those papers have been subject to scrutiny and appraisal, deciding what's likely to be true and what's not likely to be true, and then bringing all of that together together into a neat little context and conclusion that means you can actually crack on and get some evidence in practice. Of course our Archimedes section, which is published every month near us down it, also has little snippets of how to do evidence better, the critical appraisal notes, and we'll open this month with one where we're wondering about the questions that have not been asked. We influence each other in myriad ways. When we're thinking about undertaking evidence-based practice things, we tend to focus on selecting the question, finding the studies, understanding the possible biases, that is, doing the appraisal, and then coming to an actionable conclusion. What can we do with it? What we tend not to do is ask, which clinical questions didn't we ask? When we're doing this sort of thing, we don't really consider which outcomes or which cases or which co-interventions did the authors of these papers not report. We frequently fail to decide that the possible biases when we're reading a paper are just too great to take it seriously and use it in practice, and we hardly ever stop to consider our original beliefs before going into the EBM type process. I mean, when you were asking your last clinical question, were you in equipoise? Did you really not know the answer to the question or were you, and this is the situation that I'm often in, seeking information to confirm or deny the hypothesis that you've put up there? How much did you, how you work, your prior belief, your expectations alter your judgments when you were doing your appraisals, your threats to validity, or how did they influence how much you thought about the hidden data or the unpublished data. Could you now go back to that evidence-based medicine thing that you did and imagine the alternate view? What if you believed the opposite? Now try reading it and seeing if you arrive at the same conclusion or if you get to a different answer. What, in your evidence-based medicine existence, are the things that are left unspoken? Back now to a question which could have been ignored, but absolutely wasn't, and has definitely not left unspoken. It's the question: Do children with Down syndrome require more vaccinations than children without Down syndrome? And this was submitted and worked up by Dean Huggard and Eleanor Malloy at the Trinity College, Dublin, in Ireland. The background is of a child who's come in a four-month checkup with Down syndrome. Routine follow-up and uh, having the immunisations, but then being queried. Is there a need for extra vaccinations in children with Down syndrome? With this question, the authors set off to look at the literature to see what they could find. They went into Medline and Cochrane and found that there were no systematic reviews in this area and no direct randomised control trials comparing giving extra vaccinations to not giving extra vaccinations, but they did find eight studies looking at immune responses and things around that field to do with vaccination. The studies had not enormous numbers in, anywhere between 12 or 63 individuals with Down syndrome, and then looking at a variety of sorts of clinical and immunological parameters to see about whether the vaccines had taken. What they found was, within this sort of varied field, that some vaccines seemed to work just as well in those with Down syndrome and those who didn't, for example, Hepatitis A vaccine, and there were others where the atom was a bit more mixed. Influenza vaccines seemed to produce a response, but it was less than you would have expected and maybe just a bit suboptimal. The meningococcal C vaccine gave lower values but appeared to be equally over the protective level that the real uncertainties were around the pneumococcal vaccines depending on how you looked at it, it was probable that the same proportion of patients had an immune response which would be protective but the actual levels were a little lower overall and so this leading to a concern that maybe that you would run into problems earlier with the vaccine sort of wearing off as it went along. Now the context of this is that children with Down syndrome are at increased risk of infections such as pneumonia and they have increased mortality from sepsis, secondary we think to an altered immune function. They're certainly at higher risk of admission to hospital with infections and then intensive care with just respiratory tract infections. And then children with Down syndrome that are in hospital and being unwell then have a negative impact upon their development and that also may affect their behaviour and the overall quality of life of those children. And so there's a really sensible reason for thinking, why is it that we should look at kids with Down syndrome a little differently than kids without Down syndrome when it comes to vaccinations? When you look at the vaccination guidelines that exist around the world, the Irish vaccination guideline does suggest that children with Down syndrome receive extra vaccines inactivated influenza annually, meningococcal vaccines including ACWY as well as meningococcal B, and the pneumococcal vaccines, the uh, polysaccharide 23, the PPV23 vaccine when they're two years or older, um, and that to follow on at least two months after they've had the 13-valent PCV pneumococcal conjugate vaccine which you can give to children younger than two and this really sits quite well alongside the evidence that these authors have discovered. Disappointingly from my point of view in the UK we don't see that the green book has anything particular about children with Down syndrome needing extra vaccinations but the UK's Down syndrome medical interest group does suggest influenza vaccination from the age of six months onwards and then PCV13 and PPV23 as addition. New Zealand also goes along with that. The US Centre for Disease Control and Prevention stuff and the American Academy of Paediatrics don't have anything extra. It's interesting to think of this in the setting of Down syndrome, which affects a small number of people, but they are immunodeficient. They do have a higher risk of infections and a higher risk of mortality from sepsis. And then from my experience, those who have leukemia, a greatly increased risk of infections and death which leads us to treat children with Down syndrome quite differently when they have acute leukemias than those children without Down syndrome. It seems reasonable to take this evidence and say, as the authors do, that children with Down syndrome should have additional vaccinations, annual influenza vaccinations, PCV13, PPV23, and maybe thinking about giving them the broader meningococcal ACWY vaccine as well as the MenV. What's still unclear is whether the immunogenicity of these vaccines is as long in kids with Down syndrome and how vaccines could improve things massively among the longer-term outcomes for these children. The final question is from Harriet Hunter for the School of Medicine in Cambridge. And her question arises from a rheumatology, a paediatric rheumatology outpatient, where there was a 10-year-old who attended with his mum had been taking methotrexate for his juvenile idiopathic arthritis. Now the methotrexate didn't appear to be working well, it was giving him the most appalling vomiting every day that he had the methotrexate, which is once a week, and he also didn't really seem to be controlling his JIA either, with his symptoms not particularly getting much better, and so he fell into the criteria that would switch over to a biological agent. But the question is being asked, which biological agent? Should it be Adalimumab or should it be Atanacept? And apologies to anybody who knows how to pronounce those drug names correctly. The doctor lets the family know that both of these drugs are effective and gives them some leaflets to have a think about which one they would like. But the clinical question arises, are they really equally effective and what are the potential difficulties or advantages of one over the other? Now. Harriet went away and looked in PubMed and Cochrane and came back with 163 potential hits to get to an answer of this question, 10 of which were relevant. Now this actually falls out into three systematic reviews that are all of the same two randomized controlled trials. One of them is 51 patients using the etanacept and another one with 58 patients using the adalibumab. There were also five larger prospective cohorts with the biggest of those being 655 different patients and these were all taken from databases of patients that had been exposed to the biological agents for the treatment of rheumatological conditions. Bringing that information together She found that there really was very little evidence that one of the drugs was hugely better than another. The systematic reviews looking at the head to head and looking at indirect comparisons came with this, showed them to be both more effective than placebo but no real difference between the two of them. These trials are a little bit unusual in that they're not your traditional take a bunch of patients and give them the drug and see which is better, the drug or the placebo. What they actually do is they take a bunch of patients and they give them all the drug to start with, and then the ones who go on to the actual trial element are those patients who responded to the drug, who got some benefit, and then the randomization is withdrawing it to go back to placebo or to carry on on the drug. And so what the trials will do is they'll give you an impression of a greater response rate than those who do it in their sort of more usual introduction of drug fashion. Bearing this in mind though, there still appears to be no massive difference between the two biological agents. So it then gets to, well, how do you use these? Well, it really then thinks, how else and what extras can you get from these drugs? For instance, the adalibumab has been shown to be effective in patients with uveitis. And when you look at the large prospective cohorts that are brought together, there is a, a, a sort of an indication bias, that is, the patients who have the in Euvitis, uh, are more likely to be given the Adalimumab than they are the Etanercept, and so you sort of get the observational data favouring what was thought to be the case and then that becomes evidence that feeds back into it and so on and so forth. It may be that Adalimumab is also good in inflammatory bowel diseases and the Etanercept isn't so if you've got patients with other comorbidities that might be steering you one way or the other. On the other hand, some of the observational data would suggest that the atanacept is at lower risk of some of the significant mycobacterial infections like tuberculosis. And so it's difficult to know for certain if there is a right answer. And what we've actually got to do is take that patient and that patient's other comorbidities into account, along with the current prices of these medicines, which are very expensive, and the cost effectiveness will be extremely sensitive to exactly what the price of that drug is at any one point in time and that it's that sort of clinical art and use of shared decision making when you bring together all of this information that comes up to the answer to the question of which is a better biological agent for the therapy of juvenile idiopathic arthritis the answer like many questions like that is probably there is no answer it's more about who the patient is what the patient's got and where the patient's going. So, that's it for this month's Archimedes podcast. Please feel free to write in or tweet in with comments, send in your Archimedes-based answers to the clinical questions that trouble you, and you too could be on the podcast or having your work splattered across the internet airwaves. Until next month, thank you for listening. I've been Bob Phillips, editor of the Archimedes section of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood.